and welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, we have a, a special morning, I believe, uh, and not just because it's chilly Sunday, although that helps. Um, we're also going to do communion. So those who are watching online at home, you can uh, join us. Uh, we're going to do that at the end of the, the message. But uh, I see some new faces, so I want to welcome you here. Uh, my name's Ross Gilbert. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're excited because, again, I think this morning has got uh, something hopefully for every one of us. I almost skipped over this passage. We're going through uh, the life of Abraham. So if you can want, you can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. And uh, I kind of expected to just skip this over. I didn't think there was enough uh, at the beginning of it to kind of warrant the whole message on it. Uh, but as I've been studying it the last couple of weeks, uh, I kept coming back to it over and over and over again. And uh, God kind of began to open up some things to me, sort of like how, remember the story where, where Peter rebukes Jesus? man, I hope there's instant replay up in heaven. I kind of want to see that. Uh, just Peter pulling Jesus aside and just saying, you know, Jesus, you're wrong in this one. Let me, let me tell you what, how it really works. Um, but remember what Jesus's answer was to Peter, that Peter, your, your problem is your eyes are on the world. Your eyes are thinking like the world thinks, and it's not thinking or seeing what's really going on in the spiritual. And I think for me, when I first went through this passage, I had that mindset of just the worldly perspective. And it was just, just an interesting story to kind of move it along to get from one point to another. But then as I kept coming back to it, God began to show me, I believe there was much more going on in this story. Uh, so I'm excited to see what, what God's going to speak to each and every one of us. But as you remember last time we were in the, the, the life of Abraham, or when we started, we said that, that Abraham, uh, right now Abram in this part of the story, is an interesting journey because it's a journey of him growing in his dependence upon God, growing in his obedience upon God. That we've noted that multiple times throughout his life, we're going to see partial obedience, but that, that obedience will change and, and have many failures along the way. And so last time we studied it, we saw how Abram didn't trust God, but rather uh, trusted in his own abilities and therefore failed to protect his wife. So you remember he was in the, the southern part of, of Canaan of the promised land and a, a great famine struck. And, and so he, he felt the need to go find food and water somewhere else. So he traveled down to Egypt because they have the Nile and they're, they're often uh, got lots of food there. So he traveled down to Egypt, but he had a fear. And the fear was that his beautiful 65-year-old wife, uh, looking smoking hot, was going to cause Pharaoh to want her and therefore kill him. And so he, he spoke a mistruth. Uh, and I say that because he didn't completely lie. He just left out some truth, right? So he said to Sarah, when people talk to you, let them know that you're my sister, but leave out the fact that we're married. And it's true, right? They, they share the same father. So they are half siblings, but he just left out the part about being married. And he was doing that because he was simply trying to protect himself, but he ends up leaving Sarah exposed. And so to kind of use the language of the new covenant, I would say Abram trusted in the flesh rather than trusted in the spirit. And, and he ended up doing what was right in his own eyes to protect himself rather than trusting God to protect him. And so the result was Sarai was taken into Pharaoh's home into the household. Um, and, and she was now, you know, being groomed to become one of uh, Pharaoh's wives. Uh, but then God redeemed all that and rescued uh, Sarah from that kind of an outcome. But the result of that was Abraham got rich off of it, right? We saw that many animals, livestock, camels, and sheep and everything, even male and female servants were given to Abraham. And so he kind of profited off of that. And, and, and then when Pharaoh found out though, he kind of frog marched him out. He, he escorted him out of Egypt, uh, being so offended about the lie that he was under. Well, this morning, we're really kind of continuing on that story. That's why I kind of went into some detail to catch us up on that, because hopefully what we're going to see is that <clears throat> what has Abram learned in all this? How is he growing and how is he maturing in this? Um, and hopefully we're going to see a parallel for our lives as well. Uh, 
how God is ultimately working to bring about that obedience in our hearts. So with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm excited about what you have for us today as a, as a community, as a fellowship. Uh, not just this morning through the worship, not through the, the message, but even afterwards where we get to fellowship and enjoy some good time and food together. But right now I pray, Lord, that, that you would speak to our hearts. Each and every one of us, we come here uh, coming out of what we've gone through this week, through our lives right now. And, and I believe there's something you want to share to each and every one of us. And so I'm going to trust your spirit as best I know how to be that that, that voice to be the teacher, to, to bring us to a place where we could experience greater freedom and life in you that comes as we trust in you. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so Genesis chapter 13, we're gonna, we're gonna read just the first four verses to start. So it begins in verse one. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife with all that belonged to him and Lot with him. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar, which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Well, you can see at the beginning here, this word so to start the beginning of, uh, of verse one is not just the you know, new chapter, new thought, new idea. It's again, it's a continuation of where Abram was just escorted out of Egypt at the end of chapter 12. <clears throat> and so now what he's doing, he's basically retracing his steps. And so if you're to kind of compare the first four verses to the last part of, of uh, chapter 10 from 10 onward, verse 10 onward, you would see that he's basically just retracing it, doing the exact opposite, ends up back at, you know, the, the, where he had his tents before between Bethel and Ai, where he had established an altar and he's back there. And he, again, it says that he called upon the name of the Lord. It's, it's basically he's, he's undoing and just pretending everything that from 1210 to the end of 12, just imagine that didn't happen. I'm just going to go right back to it. And we're going to start all over again. And, and basically here, this phrase, he calls upon the name of the Lord is, is the significant Past part of this passage, I think. So what does that mean to call upon the name of the Lord? You know, I, I think it, it simply means that. It just means he began to call out to God. He began to call upon God to be God, to lead him, to, to, to guide him, to empower him, to, to protect him, to care for him. Everything he wasn't doing when he went down to Egypt. Because again, going down to Egypt was Abram trying to look after himself. It was almost like Abram called upon the name of Abram. And that didn't go well. And so he's coming back now to call upon the name of the Lord to say, Yahweh, God, I need you to guide me. I need to follow you. I need to trust you. I did it my way. It didn't work. Right? So, sorry, Paul Anka. It's not going to work that way. He wrote that song, by the way. It wasn't for Sinatra. Just never mind. So <laughs> it didn't work. All right. So, so what he's doing is he's calling upon the name of the Lord. And what we see here is repentance. That's essentially what he's done here. Now that word repentance, it, in the Hebrew, it means to return. And that's essentially what we've seen him doing, right? He's kind of returning to Bethel or outside of Bethel. He's returning to calling upon the name of the Lord. But I like how the Greek translates that word. The, the word there in, in Greek that's translated repentance is to change your mind. It's to change your thinking. And I think that's important because often we think of repentance as changing your behavior, as you're doing one thing and now you're doing something else over here, right? For example, many of you are praying for Robin to repent of cheering for the Ottawa senators and he will repent of that and he will begin to cheer for, for well, I was gonna say God's team, but I don't know if the Leafs are God's team, but, <laughs> but, but that's repentance we think is just changing a behavior aspect of it. But that's not what God's after. Think about you parents out there, right? You have kids and your kids are misbehaving and they're doing something they're not supposed to be doing. And so you give them a bit of a scold and they, they go fine and they stop and they've changed their behavior, but have they changed their heart? Not necessarily, right? And so just because they change what they're doing doesn't mean they change their heart. And that's what God's after. He's not after just a different behavior. He's not after just a, this moral outcome. He's after our hearts. And that's what he's looking for. And that's what true repentance is. And that's what I think we're seeing here in Abram is that he has had repentance within his heart. 
Hence the call upon the name of the Lord. It wasn't just returning back to Canaan. He's actually trusting in God again. And I think that's what this passage is really special for us. That that's what I want us to discover in, in, in some detail is how does God bring about that repentance? How does God bring about that kind of work within Abram's heart? Because really that's, that's the story of Abram's life. It's a life of God working out repentance in him. And, and that really, I don't think should surprise us because Abram is a man just like you and I, right? Think about it. Abram for him, he grew up with a father that worshiped all kinds of false gods, many idols in Mesopotamia. Those were the gods that Abram grew up worshiping. And God calls him out of that and into the promised land to now for Yahweh to be his God. And so Abram's got to learn now to trust Yahweh. What does that mean? How do I worship this Yahweh? How do I trust this Yahweh? What are his ways when all of his life, he's known something else altogether. And so he had to learn all that. And that's happening over the lifetime of Abram. And that's what we're discovering. How does Abram learn repentance, changing of his mind, changing of his thinking to learn to not trust in these other things that he grew up on, but now to learn to trust in Yahweh. How many people can see parallels between that and us? Right? That's our story too, because we grew up in a world and a world that is offering you many other gods, many other ways to live, many other ways to protect yourself and care for yourself. That if you got to find it through prosperity and wealth, or, or if you have control and you're guarded, then you'll be safe. And if you isolate and you push everyone away, then you'll be okay. Or maybe you need to have anger, or maybe, maybe you need to, to um, just find contentment and through pleasure and hedonism. And, and that will be this, the key to it. And it's just all about trying to find life in this world alone but maybe the, the most common God that each and every one of us has had in our lives is the small G God of ourselves, where we're the ones calling the shots. We're the ones relying on our own wisdom, our own understanding. And so we've been going through life trying to figure it out and it's not working. And then there comes that moment where we discover Jesus. We discover this gift of salvation and this freedom. And we've repented in terms of, I, I can't find a way to heaven on my own. And so God, you're going to be my ticket to heaven. You're going to be my, my salvation because you're my savior. And so we have that moment of repentance and everything's fine after that. Amen. Yeah, no, not quite. Right now we begin a journey where we're continuing repenting continuing to change our thinking, change our mind about the flesh, about what's sin and, and, and what, what's godly and what's holy. And, and so we're, we're over time, just like Abram, we're learning to trust God. We're learning obedience to God. And it's, it's something that I've experienced in my life multiple times over. And I've had the, I've had the pleasure to sit alongside of you, some of you, going through some really difficult times where God has been working out that repentance. And it's amazing. And you think about where you are today, then compared to where you were a number of years ago and how your relationship with God has hopefully grown. That's that ongoing repentance that's happening. But if you're like me, you don't want to stop here. If you're like me in the apostle Paul, you'll say, I have not yet arrived. I haven't figured it all out yet. There's so much more, more for God to teach me and not about knowledge. I mean, that's beautiful and that's wonderful. And that might be part of it, but it's not about gaining more knowledge. It's about growing in our trust and dependence upon him, growing in our intimacy of him, our experience of him. There's the amen corner over there. I was looking for it. Glad I found it. All right. So that's why I think this, support, this passage is so important. That's why I think this morning can be so special for us because we're going to see how does God work out that repentance in our lives, how he was working that out in Abram's life. And he began even before Abram went down to Egypt. Right. So hopefully we can see that and then see how he's working in our lives. So chapter 13 again opened up. And part of what we see in chapter 13 is, is a new character. Lots. It's not the first time he's introduced. We see him at the end of chapter 11, but now we get a focus in on Lot. Sort of like how we got to focus in and discover who Sarai was the second half of chapter 12. Now we get to discover who Lot is. And Lot is a significant person to the life of Abram. He's his nephew. 
the son of a man named Haran, Abram's brother, who died before Abram even left Mesopotamia. And so when Haran died and Abram left Mesopotamia, he decided to bring Lot along with him. But I don't believe it was just simply out of obligation. I don't believe it was just Abram being a good uncle. I think there was Lot played a significant role in Abram's life. In that Abram needed an heir. Every, every person, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for an heir, someone that they could pass on to their name, their, their wealth, their significance. And, and in many cultures, that is that, that passing on is really the evidence that your life will go on because it's going on into another, another person. That's why many people rightly or wrongly, they want that male son in order to have that heir to pass their name along to. And so Abram not having any children of his own decided to appoint or adopt Lot to be that. Lot was going to be his heir. And therefore Lot loved or Abram loved Lot as his own son. He's very significant to him. And so that's why he brought him to from Mesopotamia, even into Canaan, even though if you remember, what did God say? Leave everything behind, leave your father's household, leave your father behind, leave you, leave your household behind, leave lot behind, leave everything behind. Because what essentially God's saying is I'm going to look after you. Everything you need, I'm going to give to you in Canaan. But Abram was partially obedient. He took his father, he took Lot, he took all of his possessions, his animals with him into the promised land. And so then what we see now in verses five through seven, and we're we're not going to read it right now, but through verses five to seven, we're learning about strife that's happening between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. So again, think about it. Abram, he brought things with him into Canaan that he wasn't supposed to bring. He goes down to Egypt and sells his wife off for even more livestock, more animals, more male and female servants. And now he brings all that back and probably out of love, he gave some of those, uh, those animals and, and livestock to Lot, but now they got a lot and there's still a famine going on, right? I mean, that, that was what led them to go to Egypt in the first place. The famine didn't end in Egypt and it didn't end when he returned. There's still a great famine going on. So there's a scarcity of food. They're battling over the resources and they're fighting over it. And so there's so much fighting. There's so much strife that they can't coexist. And so instead of figuring out a way to work together, these herdsmen are competing with each other. They're fighting with each other. And it would be, it'd be understandable to read that and just kind of move on. That's sort of what, what I was doing that. Yeah, well, of course, you know, there's, there's a, it's a supply and demand issue, right? Supply is low. Demand is high. People start fighting over stuff. I mean, you've seen those videos, right? From black Friday, you know, where all of a sudden the, the chaos ensues for the last toy on the toy shelves. I remember growing up cabbage patch kids dolls. Remember those ones? Cabbage patch kids dolls. You're showing your age. If you see it, right? You, you, you will have gray hair somewhere. If you know what I'm talking about. I remember stories where uh, a, a soccer mom slugs another mom to fight over the last cabbage patch doll right? Supply and demand, right? And people go crazy sometimes when there's a scarcity and they need something even more so when lives are at stake. So there's this fighting deep strife going on and it'd be easy to kind of see that and move forward. But I think this is where God began to peel back the curtain for me to see beyond what was happening in a worldly level and begin to show me what was going on in a spiritual realm. And here's what I believe. I believe God was behind the famine in the first place. That God was using the famine to bring about that change, that repentance, that obedience in Abram. Now, let me explain why. And we we do need to be careful because I'm making this argument from silence. What I mean is God, it doesn't say, and God caused the famine. Doesn't say that explicitly in in scripture. So I can't say with a hundred percent of certainty that this is the case. However, I do believe there are other things that are pointing to this. And so there's evidence, I think from the text, right? Number one, Lot wasn't supposed to be with Abram, right? He was in in Genesis 12, one, he was to leave everything behind, but he chose not to, he brought Lot with him. So Lot is in relationship with Abram in a way that God didn't intend. And God is going to do something to bring that separation about, I believe. The other thing is there's strife going on between the herdsmen. 
And, and that would, again, would be normal. You would expect that because of that whole supply and demand scarcity aspect. But here's what's interesting. At the end of chapter of, of verse seven, God lets us know something. He says that the Canaanites and the Perizzites that were in the land weren't fighting. So here's the thing. Lot and Abram and his herdsmen, they can't get along. But two other clans that are much bigger don't seem to be having that problem. So the strife seems to be localized. It's, it's not just a supply and demand issue. There's something else happening that is being stirred up between these two herdsmen. So something's off here. And then finally, it seems to be when we get to verse 14, that, that then after this happened, that's when God speaks to Abram next. So it's almost like God was waiting for, it, for Lot to leave. So I say all that from a text perspective, that there's evidence that would support the argument that God was behind the famine, bring about this repentance. But maybe we could ask a couple other questions. First, is it possible for God to cause a famine? What do you think? Absolutely, right? God is God. He's in complete control. So of course he can do that. The next question is, would he? Would he cause a famine? Well, I think that is the case. There's a long, there's lots of, lots of examples throughout scripture where God is using a famine in particular to bring about change within his people. And we're not going to turn to all of them, but we could turn to Deuteronomy 28 and in verses 47 to 48, God there tells them in the covenant that if you disobey, I will send a famine. I will send pestilence that he's going to do all that. So we have an example of that. We could turn to Jeremiah 24, 10. We're speaking to the king of Judah and that because of their, their rebellion, God says, I am now sending a famine and sword to bring about repentance, to bring about that change. Or you got the whole story of Hosea and Gomer in chapter two and how, how their um, Gomer is disobedient. And even when she returns, she changed her behavior. Her heart hadn't changed. She just simply said it was better for me when I was with my husband, Hosea, than it is now. But the moment things changed, she would have run off with another lover. And it's at this moment that more affliction comes. I'll take away her food. I'll take away her drink. I'll take away her parties. I'll take away her clothes. I'll take away everything. And in this affliction, it will become a doorway of hope. In this valley of trouble, it says, there will be a doorway of hope. And so that's what we're seeing happening right now in all this, I think, is that God is using this affliction. So again, there's many examples of that, but there's one in particular in Isaiah chapter 30 that I want us to focus in on. So I, I'd ask you to open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 30. If you don't bring your Bibles, you can look on your, your app. The, the reason we don't put the scripture verses on the screen very often is we want you to get back into the word. I think for, for too many years, we've taken the easy way of just sitting back and watching. And I think it's important for us to, to crack open our Bible and to the, especially the parts of the pages that stick together and, um, and, and get reacquainted with what our father is saying to us. So Isaiah chapter 30, beginning in verse 15 for thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel has said, in repentance and rest, you will be saved. There's that word repentance again, right? Here it means to return. In rest, in trust, in abiding, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength, right? Not trying to do too much, not trying to take things into your own abilities, but taking a deep breath and trusting God, he says, that's where you're going to find your strength. Isn't that beautiful? How many people are encouraged by those first two verses so far? Hallelujah, right? But look what it says next. But you were not willing. You refused, God says. Instead of coming to me, instead of trusting in me, instead of depending upon me, instead you took it on yourself. You weren't willing to trust in yourself and trust in me. Verse 16. And you said, no, for we will flee on horses. If we were to go to chapter 31, we would see that the horses there are, are a symbol, a type talking about the flesh, talking about our own strength. And so instead of trusting in God, we're trusting in ourselves because it's a binary choice. You can't trust in God and in the flesh. Nor can you trust in the flesh and trust in God. It's one or the other, right? That's Galatians 5, 16. Walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Won't happen. It's one or the other. 
And so because Israel here was not willing to trust in God, was not repentant towards God, they were now trusting in themselves, trusting in these horses, it says. And therefore you would trust in these horses. Therefore you shall flee and we will ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who will pursue you will be swift. How many of you discovered that when you try to outrun your problems, they seem to be faster than you? Do you know why that is, by the way? We often are our biggest problem. Again, because of who we're trusting in. Is it God or is it the flesh? And so no matter how fast, how far you run, you won't outrun them. That's why I say to couples who are coming in and they, I just need to get a divorce and that will solve all my problems. No, no. I, I think what that will do is it will cause more problems, but even wherever you go, wherever you run off to, you will find more. Go to Vancouver, go to Guatemala, go to Guam, wherever that is on a map, wherever you're going, you will not be able to outrun them. Verse 17. 1,000 will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five. There's so much anxiety. There's so much fear because you, you are so, so feeling vulnerable. Until you're left as a flag on a mountaintop and as a signal on a hill. A picture of that. You, you think about a flag on a mountaintop. Think about uh, those, those cell towers on top of big hills or, or, uh, or flagpoles on a hilltop. Basically, you can see that from anywhere. And that's the imagery that God's using here. That when you're living out of this way, out of the flesh, and you're so desperate and you're striving so hard, it will become apparent. You will be exposed and everyone's going to see the ugliness of your flesh. It's a miserable place. It's a desperate place. Thank God there's a verse 18 though. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He's not sitting back enjoying any of this. Think about, think about Jesus when he's sitting over, uh, looking over Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to take you under my care. How I've longed to take you under my wing but you were not willing. It's not about God, it's about us and our refusal to trust him and our, our decision to trust in our own strength, our own abilities. I'm wanting to show you grace, but as Peter says, he gives grace to the humble, only the humble, not to the proud. The proud says, I'll do it. I'll take care of myself. And those are the ones he opposes in order to show that grace to us. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. How blessed are those who desire him above anything else in this world. Whether it be success, whether it be protection, whether it be justice in this world, whatever it is they're looking for, they want him. How blessed are those people. Verse 19, O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. When you call upon the name of the Lord, when you cry out to him and say, God, I want you, not you on my terms. See, that's often what we do is we cry out to God and we say, God, I need you. I depend on you. I require you. Now do it my way, this, this outcome right now. And God is a means to an end. We don't really want God. We just want a big weapon to get our way. A bully in essence. But to the one who says, no, I want you, God. And I don't care about the outcome. Because if it's just you and me, I got everything I need. To that, the Lord is longing to be gracious. To that prayer, to that cry, he says, I'll answer. Verse 20, here's the key. Although the Lord has given you the bread of privation and the water of oppression. That word privation, I had to look it up. I'm like, what's the difference between deprivation and privation? And, and basically deprivation is, is the... Um, 
is the act. You deprive someone of something, but privation is the state of being. It's the experience of it. And, and more specifically, it's the, it's the absence of the most basic needs that you and I have. So look what it says in verse 20. Although it was God, Yahweh, who gave you the bread of privation and the water of oppression. Who's the source? See, it's easy. It's easy at times to, to blame other people. You know, we're in a, we're in a difficult state and, and the, and the pressure of our finances are high because of inflation and, and, and we're still getting over all the lockdown and the bitterness and the fighting. And now there's a, now there's a war going on in the middle East and boy, did that ever light a, 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 a keg of dynamite. I mean, now all kinds of tension and torque. And so now, well, it's, 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 it's the government's fault. Which one? That's right. Right. It, it, it just is right. So we're blaming politicians. We're blaming the, the oppositions, the ones that aren't in power. We're, we're blaming the ones who are not even elected and not even voted in yet. And we're, we're blaming other countries. And, and I think it's Guam's fault really. I mean, it's like, we're just blaming everyone, everything, but peel back the curtain. God's at work. To quote C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is on the move. And if we could just see that God is doing something here, he's inviting you and I to call upon his name, to reach out to him. And that, that this bread of privation, the struggle that we're in, be it financially, emotionally, relationally, whatever you're up against, God's here. He's cooking. I can smell it. And he's doing something amazing and good. Look what it says. Go on. Verse 20. Although the Lord has given you the bread of privation and the water of oppression, he, your teacher. My Bible has a capital T teacher because the translators understood that teacher is who? The Holy Spirit. Right? Think about when Jesus was praying in and, and, and John 14. I'm going to send you another. Right? That was the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit, he will teach you all the things that I've spoken to you. I love that, by the way, as a, as a, as a pastor, as a teacher, that the greatest teacher that ever walked the face of the earth, Jesus, all he could do is speak. That's it. He couldn't make those disciples get it. All he could do is speak. And then it was the Holy Spirit's job to actually take it and teach it to them. You know what that means for, for Robin, Sheila, myself, Josh, and anyone else who steps on this stage, all we can do is speak. We just speak to you and we got to trust the Holy spirit to be the teacher, to bring to your remembrance, the things that he was speaking. Hence the meditate on his word. Hence it's not about perfection. It's about trusting him. He's bringing those things to our mind and we're remembering it. So he's the, your teacher will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Meaning that, that the Holy spirit won't just be a concept anymore. It won't be a theological idea or, or the third part of the Trinity that you can begin to speak to people about maybe, maybe in a Bible study or in a small group or maybe in evangelism when people are asking about it, it's not just about knowledge you'll know the Holy spirit. You'll have a relationship with him and you'll be interacting with him back and forth. You'll be talking to him and he'll be talking to you. Great example. This is Job. Actually, you read through the whole book of Job and everything he went through, who was behind all that he was going through. It was ultimately God. There's no other way around it. We often say, well, well, he allowed it. Fair enough. Could he have not allowed it? So he wasn't just kind of hands off. It happened. I don't want to go as far as say he caused all of that because we got to take, in, take into account that Satan had a role to play. But I love this. He purposed it. He had a purpose in Job's life, which is why it was God who put Job on the table when he talked to Satan in the first place. Because God had a plan. And he wanted to bring about repentance and obedience in the life of Job. And it worked because when you get to the end of Job, after 
40 something chapters of struggle and suffering and misery that he went through suffering that I, I pray none of us would ever have to experience. You know what he says? I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Basically saying I've, I've come to see the problem because the problem was his own pride. You know, that famous verse in Job 13, I think it's 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Beautiful, isn't it? My brother-in-law Gershom, he wanted to tattoo that on his arm. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. What, a, what an incredible declaration of faith, which Job was a faithful man. The problem is we don't read the rest of the verse. First goes on to say, nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. He, the imagery in that chapter is God, I'm going to take you to court. I got my briefcase ready. I got my arguments made. I've planned them all out. I'm going to take you to court. And when you hear my case, you know what you're going to say, God? Oh, Job, I'm so sorry. I, I have hurt you. I have failed you. I didn't see it coming. I'm so glad, Job, that you have rebuked me. I take it all back. That's what Job thought. That was the arrogance and the self-righteousness and the pride of Job. So I repented that, he says. No more of that. But here's what's really cool. He says, before my ears had heard of you, but today my eyes see you. In our vernacular, you know what we say? We say, before I knew you in my mind, I knew about you, but now I know you in my heart. Same idea. It's a relationship now. There's a, there's a trust. There's a connection. It's not just a God out there and me doing my thing as best I know how that might impress him might be what he thinks, but ultimately it's me trying to figure it out. That's all flesh. Even if it's good looking, holy looking flesh, it's fake holiness, self-righteousness. The only thing, the only person that's holy is God himself. Therefore, only what we do that is holy is what God does through us, which requires that trust, requires that de dependence. In repentance and rest, you'll be saved. And quietness and trust will be your strength. That's what we're looking for here. So behold, you'll see your teacher. Verse 21, your eyes will hear a word behind you. This is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or the left, that's the Holy Spirit guiding us now. Each step, keep going, Chuck. You're doing the right thing. Keep going. Alex, that left, that, go left, go left, go left. Other left. You got it, right? That's the Holy Spirit, that the teacher walking with us, guiding us. And verse 22. Now we'll stop at 21. That's good. Do you see the pattern? I share this with friends of mine, other teachers of the new covenant. And they, you know what their answer to me is on all that? You quoted Job, you quoted Isaiah. You're looking at life of Abraham. Brother Ross, that's all Old Testament. We're in the new covenant. The cross changed all that. So the idea that God would use the circumstances that he would cause the privation and the oppression that he would, he would be behind all that. That's Old Testament, brother. The things have changed with the cross. No more. I don't think so. I don't think so. Cause people are people. And there still needs to be a work done in me that yes, I am perfect in my spirit. God's words, not mine. Hebrews. I am perfect in my spirit. I'm learning obedience. And so there needs to be things that God's doing still. We're not going to look up these verses, but John 15, one and two talks about how God is the vine dresser and you and I are the branches and he is the vine. We're grafted into him. But what does every good vine dresser do? He prunes the branch in order that it would be more fruitful. You would be a fruitier Christian. That's God's goal. Just so you're clear. And sometimes that means pruning off dead branches or sick branches, like sin in our life, right? We're all excited about when that happens, right? When we're struggling with some kind of addiction, whether it be alcohol or drugs or, or, or we got a, a, a uh, or maybe our, the things we watch on TV or pornography or, or lust or whatever it is, we love when God just, we're free. Oh, thank you, Jesus. But sometimes he prunes this, the branches that were fruitful, the good things, the ministries or the relationships or, or things that God was in. And he says, that season is over. 
And I'm doing it so that you will be more fruitful. Or we can look at second Corinthians one. We looked at this one, went through Corinthians, right? Chapter one, verses eight and nine, where Paul went to Asia and he thought there was going to be an open door that God sent into Asia. And what did he find? Such trials, such difficulties, such oppression, such affliction that he wanted to die. He wanted it out. It wasn't an open doorway. It was a door in the face. He wanted to quit, but he tells us why this happened again, because God was in it. God sent them there. Why did this happen in verse nine? This happened so that I, the apostle Paul, writer of most of the new Testament, planter of more churches than any other person at the time, took the gospel as far East and West as anyone else. So that I, we're good. The apostle Paul says all this happened so that I would learn not to trust in myself, but in the God who raises the dead. See, he was still trusting in himself. He still needed repentance. Or later on in chapter 12 of second Corinthians, where he talks about the flesh, right? And all this happened, God, take it away. It's making me weak. And what does God say? That's the point. My grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So there are times in your life where God is making you weak. And Paul goes on and says, therefore I will boast about my affliction, my trials, my tribulation, the persecutions. And I remember reading that and wrote beside my Bible. Can I say that? No, I, I want to, I want to call upon the Lord, name of the Lord to, to, you know, strike that down, right? Smite my enemies, God. And Paul says, no, I want to boast in all that. Or we got Hebrews 12. I love this passage. And one day we're going to study this in great detail. But Hebrews 12, 3 to 11. And he talks about the discipline of the Lord. And the discipline of a father to you. And how our earthly fathers weren't perfect by any stretch, but your heavenly father is perfect. And he's disciplining you that you might share in his holiness. Now please understand, discipline is not punishment. He's not out to get you. He's not out to hurt you. That's not his agenda at all. His purpose is that repentance, that we learn obedience, that we learn to trust him. We have James 1, 2 to 4, I'm talking about those trials and how good they are in order that it would bring forth this freedom. But there's one I do want to focus in on and it's Romans chapter 5. We'll go through it really quickly. Paul's talking about things that he's boasting about in Romans 5 verse 3. He's boasting about salvation and, and restoration with God and, and peace with God and standing in his grace. And then he says in verse three, and not only this, all these wonderful things, but we exalt, we glory, we boast in our tribulations, our pressures, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, the ability to stand up under that trial, that resilience, and that resilience, that perseverance brings proven character and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out from within our hearts. You see, God's using that tribulation to mature us. And we know that's the case. We see that in terms of just in this world that, that I'm not going to get stronger muscles by sitting on a couch. I've tried it. It doesn't work, right? You got to go to the gym. You got you to strain them. You got to stress them and they get stronger. Well, the same is going to be true about our faith and our obedience. Now, the problem is, what do we often think when we're going through a trial? God, you've forsaken me. God, you've abandoned me. I'm all alone. How long, oh Lord, before you'll come rescue me? That's the normal response. Or maybe, maybe you're thinking like Job's friends. There's sin in your life and God's punishing you. And you made a mistake. And that's not it. And if we keep reading through, through Romans chapter five and encourage you to do that on, when you got time, but from six onward, he says, think about it. One would hardly die for an unrighteous man. One would hardly die for their enemy, right? Well, that's exactly what Jesus did. That while you were still a sinner, while you were rebellious, while you were ungodly, he died for you. Isn't that amazing? And then in verse nine, you've been, you've been saved from all the wrath of God. All of it. Think about it. You know what that means? This will blow your mind. 
God does not have a single wrathful thought towards you ever. But, you know, there's different degrees of wrath. There's the high levels of wrath. And then there's the medium ones, right? He's just irritated. Well, he's not irritated with you anymore either because that's just more wrath. And then there's the mild ones. This is where I struggle with. He's annoyed with me. He's ticked off. He's disappointed with me. No, Jesus' death on the cross took all that away. There's zero wrath from God to you. He's not punishing you. He's teaching you. He's maturing you. He's growing you. That's what he's doing. And that's why we need to embrace that and accept that. And I believe in all my heart that this is the, one of the biggest areas that we've misunderstood God's heart is that we didn't understand why he's doing what he's doing. Think about it. How often, how often when you're going through a difficult trial and different, difficult circumstance, you've said, well, if he loves me, he wouldn't allow this. If he loves me, he would stop it. If he loved me, he would rescue me from it. You know what the Bible says? Because he loves you, you're going through it. The question is, will you call upon the name of the Lord? You see, that was Abram's answer right there. We're going we're gonna to move quicker now to kind of get to the end because I know there's chili waiting. But, but that verse in verse four, where he called upon the Lord, that was his salvation right there. That was it. Everything afterwards is the outcome of that call upon the name of the Lord. Because what Abram did in that moment is he trusted God. He yielded to God. He surrendered to God. and says, God, I did it my way. It didn't work. Now we're going to do it your way. And so now when the strife comes in verses eight, nine, he comes to, to his brother or to, to Lot and he says, brother, because his family, and he says, we don't need a fight. We don't need a fight. So I'll tell you what, why don't you pick a direction and I'll go the opposite and I'll give you first pick. You can see the yielding and the surrendered heart, not behavior, yes, but more importantly, the heart. And so he's yielding it. And there's a contrast between how Lot sees it, and how Abram sees it. And I think it's interesting because Lot is a great picture of, of a carnal or fleshly or at least worldly point of view. See, what Lot should have done is he should have said, no, Abram, you're, you're, the, you're the elder. Uh, I'm under your authority. Everything I have is because of you. You pick. He should have deferred, but he doesn't. He goes, ah, I got my opportunity. And he looked around and he saw a, a, a parcel of ground that was rich like the Nile rich like Egypt. And he thought this would be perfect. Lots of places there for my animals, my livestock. We're going to go there. There's some cities. I think they're up and coming. Sodom and Gomorrah. I think they're just, there's a great future there. And so he, he went to go live and he lived in the city, it says. Why is that significant? Abraham was always outside the city because he was never part of it. But Lot has gone into it now. He's, he's allowing the world to corrupt him and his family. And the results of that, it so corrupted his wife that she never wanted to leave Sodom. And it so corrupted his daughters that after Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed, his daughters are going to rape him so that he can, they, they can get pregnant. The corruption of those cities impacted the family because Lot was thinking just about worldly success. But Abraham wasn't. He was trusting God. He knew it didn't matter wherever he went. He knew I don't need a lush part of ground. I don't need to be near the water. I could be in the driest, you know, most depressing part of, of Canaan and God will provide. You know why? Because he promised that he would. So I got none to lose. So I yield because I called upon the name of the Lord. And that's the call to you and I now. Because there are things in all of our lives that we're struggling with. Oh, so many good things. Let me share this one really quickly because I think this is powerful. In Deuteronomy 8, 2 to 5, let me just read it to you. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. This is Moses now speaking to Israel before they're about to go into Canaan and how God looked after them 40 years in the wilderness. You remember all the ways which the Lord looked after you that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He's still doing that with us. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, 
that you might understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. I heard someone quote that once. It was Jesus to Satan. He was declaring that trust. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus, you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. I mean, you wouldn't give your kids everything they wanted just to make them happy because they'd be spoiled and useless. You're thinking longer term. You're thinking about what they need and and, and the things that they're going to require. And that's what God's doing. He's developing in us a trust in him because in our world, everything we're facing, there's all kinds of pressures. Maybe there's pressures in your marriage. Maybe there's pressure because you're not married and you're single. Maybe there's pressures with your job, your career, or you don't even know what your career is supposed to be. Maybe you're struggling with this affordability crisis, which is in many ways, I think a modern day famine. Maybe you're struggling with your health. And the question for you and I is, will we be like Lot and look around the world and say, well, I think that that's really green and grassy and, and it's near a city and I think we'll be okay. Let's go there. Trusting in your own strength. Or will you be like Abram and call upon the name of the Lord and surrender to him and cry out to him and say, God, I want you and I'm going to trust you. That's the question. Please don't let God say to you, you were not willing. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.